Where do we go from here? You ever ask that question? So where do we go from here? You, you know, you just fill in the blank in terms of a variety of different circumstances. You, you know that a change is needed. You can't stay where you are. Things cannot remain as they are. Something needs to happen. Something needs to shift. But you're unsure. You're unsure as to what would that mean? What would that entail? Where would it take you? So where do we go from here? We've all asked that question in one way or another. Jesus' first disciples were asking that question too. So where do we go from here? He has made clear his mission. He has made clear his purposes for them. And light is beginning to dawn. They're beginning to grasp, beginning to grapple with these things. Certainly not uh, completely and clearly and coherently, but they're beginning. And so there's this question that's breaking in upon them. So where do we go from here? What does it mean? What will, where will this take us? If all this is true, what will it mean? Where do we go from here? If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. So if you're trying to find that in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the first four books of the New Testament, uh, the four Gospels that we have that have been passed down to us. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 18, uh, picking up, and it's very much in the context, we'll get to that in a minute, uh, how it fits in well with what we just read from last week. We're looking to look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 9, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Let's pray together. Lord, as the psalmist speaks in Psalm 1, we would like, we would long, and indeed are meant to be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that we do, we would prosper. Oh, we would not want in any way to go, come anywhere near being like the wicked who are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. And we know that such flourishing is found in your ways. and in walking in the path that you have set forward for us in your word. 
we also know we have not the power, we have not the strength, we have not the ability to do the very things that you call us to do, and you and your matchless grace have provided everything there, forgiveness of sin, cleansing from all of our iniquity, standing and status secure even for uh, wayward children like ourselves, and then even the promise of your indwelling spirit, the promise of change even in this life and ultimate renewal in the life to come. We have so much. And indeed, we have your word this morning to grapple with, words here that you spoke to your disciples there that day in Capernaum. Give us ears with which to hear, we pray. Then indeed we might flourish and walk in your ways and do so together. In your name we pray, amen. A course of healing necessitates change, right? Does that make sense? A course of healing necessitates change. Let me give you a couple of examples. Let's say your health is a wreck, right? And if there's going to be some healing, there's going to need to be some change. You're going to need to address issues of your diet and pay attention to what the nutritionist has been telling you. Uh, you're going to need, perhaps, to get you know, more disciplined about your exercise and actually start paying attention to people who are telling you, man, woman, you need some rest. You need some rest. You need to learn how to, goodness, if nothing else, just get some sleep. So that's one example, just our personal health. You know, a course of healing necessitates change. Here's another one, shifting to another kind of healing and change. Let's think not just in terms of individual health, but grand scale political structures. Let's say a dictator is pushed off their throne. Well, then a new power ascends into its place. Well, you can guarantee with that, right? New policies new administration, new procedures, all of that for the people to live under because, again, a course of healing necessitates change, whatever form that healing uh, may be, and all the change and all the adjustments that are going to have to come with that. All right? Jesus' message, time and again, is described in the Gospels as the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. Time and again, it is described for us as the gospel of the kingdom. That is to say, the dawning, the coming, the arrival of the rule and reign of God breaking forth on this earth. And it is clearly declared with Jesus' words, his message, and it is clearly demonstrated with his works, his miracles, the breaking in the coming of the kingdom of God, his rule and reign on this earth. And that necessitates some change and adjustments. The breaking in of the kingdom of God on this earth. Or if I may speak more to the point regarding this text, the coming of the kingdom brings a reversal of values. The coming of the kingdom brings a reversal of values, and we must then learn to live in light of that. How so? How, how do we see in this text a reversal of values? Three ways. They're in your outline. First, the need for us to become like children. Secondly, 
the need for us to become a community of care. And thirdly, the need for us to fight the temptations to sin. Those three, or if I may put them in a different way, tweaking the outline just a bit, but it's pretty much the same. Humility, community, and hostility, rightly understood. Humility, community, and hostility. Let's look at these three in turn and and engage with this text just a little bit here for the next few minutes. So the first one has to do with our becoming like children. The, The first way in which the kingdom necessitates change and our living in light of that. So let's look at verses one through four again. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. All right, this is um, very much connected with what Jesus has been saying in the text that we looked at last week, the very end of chapter 17. And this is a call to, again, humility. Uh, Jesus has been talking, remember from last week, he was talking about the temple tax with Peter and whether or not he should pay and that whole thing about the fish and the shekel and, and all of that. The presenting reason that the disciples are asking this question and wrestling with this issue as to, who is the greatest in the kingdom, stems from what they've just heard him say. He has said that he is the son of the king. And by extension, they are part of the family. They have a place at the table, a place in the household. They implicitly are sons of the king. And so now that's their spun, it's spun up in their minds, well, hmm, we're sons, you're the, the son, we're sons too, what would that mean? What would the implications of that be? Who is greatest in the kingdom? You can see, you know, the presenting reason, right, as to why they're asking a question like this. But there's something down deeper beneath that. And it's a little more sinister. And it has to do with our obsession with preeminence. Our, 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 our obsession with, with uh, the higher place, the best seat at the table, that in one way or the other, we all want and are striving and clawing for. And that's really what's going on here. And that's what's driving this question, not just the presenting reason, but the deeper, more sinister reason as well. And into that terrible mist and cloud of their confusion, Jesus breathes this word of clarity. And it's rather sobering. It's rather stunning what he tells them. He says, you have a need to turn. He begins with this this formulaic word, truly, or other translations put it this way, I tell you the truth. Now, that that immediately, that's that's Jesus' way, and it was a Semitic way of saying, full stop, what you're about to hear, you really need to hear. You need to shut up and pay attention. Truly, I tell you, you need to turn. You need to do an about-face, a 180, switch directions. You're way off course. You're obsessed with standing and rank within the kingdom. You need to be asking the question about even entrance into the kingdom. You see how misguided you are. 
And he is insisting that they turn. Truly, I say to you, you must think about these things. And then as an object lesson, he points to this child, calls this child to him. Now, this is worth noting, just a little little side note here. Um, We know this takes place in Capernaum. It's likely taking place in Peter's house there in Capernaum. If it's in Peter's house, guess whose child this likely is? Peter's. That's not a big point. It's just kind of interesting to consider. But Jesus in no way is pointing to this child and saying, oh, be innocent. Be innocent like this wonderful child. Jesus has no has nothing, has nothing to do with the innocence of children whatsoever, but rather the inability of this child. Not innocence, inability. Vulnerability. The need to, to turn to, to rely upon, to trust in the parent, which every child has an inherent need to do. The, the, the stance being nothing more, nothing less than open, empty hands. Humility. That's what Jesus is calling for. He makes it quite clear there. We miss it there in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is saying here is that part of what it means to follow him necessitates becoming like children, turning in him, relying upon him, trusting in him, coming before him, standing, kneeling before him with humility. And this is absolutely foundational. Absolutely foundational. Last week we were looking at and considering the fact that the idea of adoption, the doctrine of adoption, the fact that we are made sons and daughters of the king by his grace, no longer orphans, is absolutely critical to our understanding of Christianity in and of itself. That was last week. This week we're coming to understand something else in terms of living that out. Humility is a crucial component of the Christian life, how we see ourselves radically affects and has implications in how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. Some of you have heard me say from time to time, humble people tend to get along. Humble people tend to rely upon their God and not make insistent demands of what they deserve and what they've earned. Woe to us as foolish people if that's what we really want. But again, our stance, our posture before him must always be that of open, empty hands. As we sing in that old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, right? Simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, right? That's the stance. It has to be always. Uh, This is part of what we see here in terms of the implications of the coming of the kingdom, the reversal of of these values. We must then live in light of that, humility. All right, building right off of that, uh, we find this second component, and that has to do with community. So picking up where we left off, verses 5 and 6, building right off of uh, those words in that context, verses 5 and 6, whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth 
of the sea. Again, this has to do with, first we have humility stemming from that community. Now, this is a metaphor Jesus is using here, and this is critical we understand this. Jesus is speaking with metaphorical language, even as that child is standing there in their midst. That child is a living metaphor of a point that he is, he is making. He is not speaking here literally of children in this context. Now, in other places, Jesus very clearly speaks to the value and priority that children must have in the community of faith. In fact, if you would just hang on in this series in chapter 19, we'll get to that. But not here in chapter 18. This is a metaphor that he is using. He speaks also through his apostles. For instance, in the book of Ephesians, when he commands parents not to exasperate their children, you see something of the value and the priority of children within the community of faith. When he also turns to children in that same passage in Ephesians, this is in this address in Ephesians 5 to the church, members of the church, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. He speaks to parents, he speaks to children, including them in the, in the community of faith. You see how dignified the value, the value that Jesus places on our children of all ages. Or you get to James. And James commands that for the care, the mercy, the, the love extended towards and all means necessary towards widows and orphans. So please, make no mistake in this qualification that I'm making here regarding Matthew 18 and, math, and, and metaphorical language. Jesus puts primacy of place on the value of children and our care for them within the community of faith. But here he's using it at this child as a metaphor. The idea being he's speaking of his followers. He's speaking of the ones that he's just already spoken of in verses 1 to 4. Those who come to him believing. Those who come to him in humility, relying upon him. He's using that language. It's that sense that he means those little ones, all the little ones, us. We are the little ones if we are his followers if we are his disciples, if in fact we are believing in him, trusting in him, relying upon him with all humility. And the meaning of that metaphor points us to the precious worth that every one of his followers has in his sight. Each belongs to him. Each and every one of his own belongs to him. There is an intensity, there is an astonishing degree of the bond and the tie that exists between the Lord and his own. So much so, he makes it very clear, it's quite striking, that how we respond to a brother and sister in the faith is an extension of our response to him. He takes it rather personally. Which is why then we read of this strong warning that to fail to receive, to cause one of these little ones in that sense to stumble, is a twofold offense. First to them, but ultimately to him. And worthy then of the worst sort of punishment. Now you might think he's, well, that's, where does that come from? The millstone around the neck, thrown. That actually was something that from time to time was done during the Roman occupation 
And that part of Galilee, we have documentation of Romans grabbing hold of Jewish citizens that they deemed to be out of line and tying a millstone around their neck and throwing them in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is not just making this up whole cloth. This is something that the people of his day knew and could, could visualize in a terrifying sort of way. The point of all this being, he's pressing hard on the need for us to be and become and grow in a community of care. Which when you think about it, speaking of reversal of values, is another huge one. Not just the humility one, but the community one as well. Is another massive, it's a seismic shift. How, think with me, how do we see each other? Do we see each other really in the way that Jesus does here, calls us to here? When you think in terms of how he prizes Every one of his followers, every one of your brothers and sisters in the faith, older, younger, do we see each other that way? Do we prize? Do we value? Do we see, in a sense, him in the face of the face of the one before us? Whoever that may, that may be. On the one hand, the fact that he holds us so in such high esteem, with such high regard, on the one hand, that should bring so much comfort to our hearts when we think, of, oh my goodness, he, he thinks of me that way. But it should also convict us and force us to ask the question, okay, that's how he sees the person in the mirror, but how do I see the person to my left and right? For consistency's sake, we have to ask that question. How do we see each other? How do we, are, are we a receiving community? A community, just this local church, that, that all would be of his own, would be welcomed in that way. And you think in terms of a reversal of values, not the way we tend to think in terms of utility. How hard or easy will you be for me to deal with? What can I gain or glean from my time with you and my investment in you? What sort of return will I get? That ought to have nothing, no place whatsoever in the community of faith, in the household of God. No matter the age, no matter the race, no matter the class, no matter the gender, no matter the culture, no matter the struggles, no matter the burdens that that person may bring, it doesn't matter. How does Jesus see them? Whose are they? The coming of the kingdom brings us this complete reversal of values, complete, utter reversal of values. We need to live in light of that. The last thing, which again stems from the first two, humility, community, therein hostility, rightly understood, okay? How do we engage with, how do we fight these temptations to sin, verses 7 through 9. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Well, again, this has to do with hostility. Now, 
Obviously, Jesus is speaking here with great seriousness. If you're missing that, you're not hearing it. I said a moment ago regarding a formulaic saying, truly I say to you, here's another one, woe. And when he uses language like that, that's not a, a, a woe of sympathy. Oh, poor old world. No, that, that's, it's not the, a woe of sympathy, it's a woe of sobriety, of seriousness, of judgment. Impending judgment. Yes, there is because of the fall and the implications of all of that and the ripple effects of all of that. Uh, it is, there is an, Jesus even says, there's an inevitability to the stumbling blocks that we will encounter all around us every day, all the time. But that does not give us a free pass and absolve us of any responsibility. Hardly. He speaks with great seriousness here. He's in no way playing any games or pulling any punches. And so he speaks of the need to resist. The need to resist. Now, obviously, he's speaking with hyperbole. When he speaks of cutting and tearing and, 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 all, and all of that, that is hyperbolic language, okay? It meant to, if as a literary device or speaking, oratorical device at the time, we even use it sometimes. If I say, you all understand that he's using hyperbole, I probably just use hyperbole, right? Um, because maybe we don't. But that's the form of language that this, this is. He's overstating it to press hard on the case that he is making and trying to smash through the walls, the, the pen, penetrate through the walls of resistance to our understanding here. So he has to use strong language. In no way is he speaking of self-mutilation. In no way whatsoever is that his intent. He created the body. In the incarnation, he assumes a body. He ascended up into heaven with a body. He will return with a body. And one day, praise God, he's going to put our bodies back together. So he in no way whatsoever is calling for the mutilation of the body. He's calling for mortification of sin, putting sin to death. For, he's using this language of obvious hyperbole to speak of the need for rigorous discipline, seeing sin for the heinous thing that it is, hating it with all that we are, despising it with all that we are, and declaring war on it in every area, every arena of our lives. That's what he's speaking of here. And again, that is a mark of what it means to follow him. The humility, the community, and the hostility. That's what he's speaking of here. To follow him, a mark of that, part of what it means, the implications of the coming of the kingdom, demands a resistance to the temptations to sin. And again, when you think about it, this is a 180. This is a reversal in terms of how we tend to think. Humility, that doesn't come easily. Community, that doesn't come easily. Nor does this hostility. I'd like to sin. <laughs> Left to myself. Right? Of course I would. And of course you would. And of course we do. That's why we do it. It comes natural to us in a fallen state. How do we see sin? Do we see it? 
through a biblical lens as an affront to the one true living God as cosmic treason to our creator or against our creator, as ultimately self-destructive and doing harm to everyone around us, however close they may be in the ripple effects that go out. Is that the way we see it? And how do we see temptation towards sin? Because, you know, if sin is not a big deal, then fighting temptation is no big deal. But if sin is a big deal, well, then I guess fighting temptation is too. Which has to mean, thinking in terms of the language that Jesus uses here regarding the hand, the feet, and the eye, let's just run with that for a moment. It would mean, among other things, not raising our hand in anger or to grasp that which is not ours, or allowing our feet to take us into places that we have no business being or going, or allowing our eyes to become preoccupied and fixated by things according to lust or just consumerism. The coming of the kingdom means a reversal of all of these values. We need to learn to live in light of that. That's what we're seeing here. Humility, community, hostility. Again, let me come back to what I said earlier. A course of healing demands, uh, necessitates change and all the adjustments that come with that. I mentioned like the idea of personal health in the beginning and government and politics. Let me give you just two more and we'll wrap it up. So imagine a neighborhood lot, okay, in an urban area. And it's overgrown and overrun just by trash and litter of just the worst kind. And let's say a generous donor comes in and cleans it up and doesn't just restore it, but transforms it into a gorgeous park and a playground for the whole community. Well, how should the residents of the playground now regard that place? They should take pride in that place and take care of it, right? And not go back to treating it and doing with it as it was before because this necessitates change, this newness. Or if you want to think in terms of a flailing, struggling college student, some of this is based on personal experience. So you have no, you're just lost. You know, you're floundering and, and on the verge of failing out perhaps. And someone takes you under their wing and they say, son or daughter, mm, you're in the wrong major. You're just on the wrong track. No wonder you're floundering. You're a fish trying to fly, a bird trying to swim. It's not going to work. And your study habits are a wreck. Let's learn how to learn. Okay, they get you on the right track. Are you going to then go back into the old major? Are you going to go back to your old study habits, you know, the stuff that got you into that mess that they brought you out of in the first place? Is that what you're going to go back to? No. No, a course of healing necessitates change and making all of the adjustments that come with that. Well, oh my goodness, we're talking of the coming of the kingdom and the newness of that. Jesus, as the king has come, made us a new people, given us a new purpose, and by his grace indwells us with a new power. Yeah, that was alliteration. You caught it. Jesus, in his grace, is calling us to be a new be, come to him as a children, as a, as a new community, 
and to fight to do war with the things that would destroy us and one another. The coming of the kingdom brings with it a reversal of values. Praise God. Who wants to go back? Let's pray. Lord, it's not as though when you came that the sky turned color and the mathematical formulas changed and the laws of physics were just utterly undone. But, oh, you the one who made and upholds all of that and us revealed yourself. This is your world. You have come to reclaim and renew it and to begin that glorious work with us from the inside out. We ask that you would open up our eyes to what is really real and truly true, that we would be and become a people who live in faith and hope and love as children in community and resisting all that would undo that. We ask that you impress all these things upon our minds, upon our hearts, and thank you now for this time that we have to gather here at the table that we could celebrate that and be refreshed of these realities. And we pray in your name. Amen. If I may ask uh, our officers to come on down and let's do this, celebrate this, lead in this together. This is, of course, we're going to be celebrating Independence Day.